Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we explore Toby Hooper's Life Force. Sebastian and I'm here with Troy. Hello. And Chris. Hey, how's it going? And we're here to discuss the 1985 Toby Hooper film Life Force. Now, this movie's kind of become something of a cult classic, you could say. Troy, what is your history with Life Force? It came out right when I was kind of just diving into horror for for reals. Like I had Missed Life Force when it was in the theater. I was too young. This came out in 85, yeah. right? So, but uh, like four months after it came out, I just discovered Fangoria and I started my subscription immediately. And so I was kind of like, all these films were now on my radar. It's like I'd finally gotten the uh, the the info portal to to find out about all this stuff. And so I definitely rented Life Force on video. Um, I can't remember how old I was, so... But like for Life Force, like for Fangoria, probably the thing they were really concentrating on was sort of the desiccated corpse puppets, right? I feel like that was sort yeah. of what you would see. And I remember, you know, through Fangoria, you could see the prior issues and it made the cover for like issue 41 or something. It was the the corpse on there, which even on the cover kind of looked a little ridiculous. Yeah. Because it looked like this big puppet. But yeah, I think when I, when I saw Life Force, it kind of fell in line with all the other movies. It wasn't that much different from other low-budget movies. I didn't realize this was like a huge-budget movie yeah. at the time, but it was just as confusing and sleazy as, you know, some of all these other things that were coming out, like Company of Wolves, I remember, was also confusing. Yeah. It had a lot of nudity in it and stuff. And then, you know, Hellraiser was also super sleazy. And um, But I do remember that... It was, I was excited about Haley's Comet coming out. Mm-hmm. And I saw it right before I saw Haley's Comet. And I was pissed because when I finally saw Haley's Comet, it was like this little line, a little elongated shape in the sky. Uh-huh. And it wasn't this massive green <laughs> spray paint of, you know, taking over the entire night sky that I thought it was going to be. So I remember being kind of mad about that. Life Force really led you down the wrong path with expectation there. <laughs> For Haley's Comet. I liked it. And it definitely, um, you know, I knew who Toby Hooper was and I remember loving Poltergeist. And so I was I was really excited about it. And it definitely kind of had 
some of that poltergeist for feel sure. To yeah. It. You know, with the with the animation and ghost yeah. stuff and the, the electricity and all that. Chris, did you see Life Force back in the day? I did not see it back in the day. It was one of those titles that was always in the video store sci-fi section that I was like, ooh, this looks interesting. But yeah. nobody I in my orbit ever talked about Life Force. It was just one of those things that... The video box with the eye and the planet. Exactly. Yeah. It was the mm-hmm. video box that I'm like, ooh, this looks cool. This is right next to Outland or whatever. And it was in that uh, area of you know sci-fi and... It wasn't until I think Netflix DVD that I was like, you know what? I kind of want to see that movie. And I put it in and and I saw it with a bunch of guys and had a bunch of beers. And uh, it didn't leave that big of an impression on me other than that there was a, a naked girl walking around the whole time. And, um, and that was kind of it. Troy, did you realize that it was from the same writer as Alien, the same screenwriter, Dan O'Bannon? Yeah, I think I did because... Uh, I was starting to read about this stuff. So yeah, I was, I was kind of aware for the first time, like I said, since I got Fangoria, these names were now, I, I was seeing their body of work. And so Dan O'Bannon was definitely a big deal. And, and then I knew about Return of the Living Dead. And so, you know, that was all kind of happening at the same time. We'll get into it later, but Return of the Living Dead was sort of part of this, this story as well. I definitely did not see Life Force in the theater. I remember seeing the posters and I had wanted to see it. I would have been around 15 or so at the time. And I just didn't get around to it. And then I think it ended up on on cable or something. But I feel like it was edited because I don't remember seeing as much nudity as there is in the movie. I would have definitely remembered it more. Yeah, a 15-year-old you would definitely remember. I mean, I thought I, I must have seen some version, and I remember thinking it was pretty bad. And then years later, a lot of my stories go this way, but I was at uh, working at Cinephile, and uh, I some of the guys I worked with were really like, Life Force is insane. And so I rented it and watched it and kind of loved it. And then it actually played at the Egyptian at one point, And I actually went to see it at the Egyptian in the theater. So that was wow. pretty fun. So, yeah, I'm kind of a, a Life Force fan. And um, around that time, I think I found a copy of the book it's based on, The Space Vampires. They basically put it out as if it was a novel tie-in because it had the movie, you know, poster as the cover and stuff. And I was like, oh, right, I'm going to read Life Force. And I was shocked to find that it's the movie is pretty close to the book. Like it's actually a (laughs) it's a faithful adaptation in many ways. I think the book was written around 1976. I've forgotten the author's name. Sorry, author of Space Vampires. Uh Carl Carl Wilson. Wilson. How could I forget the name yeah. Carl Wilson? Um, <laughs> Has he written anything else? Or no, is it Colin Wilson? It's Colin Wil. It's Colin, Colin Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, yeah. There's also an actor in the movie named Colin, so it gets kind of. There's a lot of Collins right. in this, but uh, yeah, I found the book to be shockingly faithful to the movie. I don't remember exactly the details, but I remember while I was reading, I was like, "Well, that's what happens in the movie." Troy, you said you read the book, right? I read this book for your podcast. Nice. Yes. And I'm so glad I did because even though I said I, I you know, was pretty into this film when I was a kid, it, it definitely, all I remembered about it was the naked girl yeah. and some zombies. Like <laughs> it, it really, this really didn't resonate with me until an adult, as a, an adult. 
like I saw this film and realized it was a holy fucking shit yeah. movie and really enjoyed it way more as an adult. But I never understood it and ever. I never understood this movie. And I tried to watch it again for this podcast. And still, it's just like, I cannot comprehend anything that's going on in this film. <laughs> I kind of have an explanation for really? that, but go ahead. I, yeah, okay. I do. I can, I can explain why you feel that way, but uh -huh. go ahead and continue. So yeah, and it, it made me realize like all I liked about this movie as a kid was this one scene with the zombie coming up in the, the medical room. Yeah. So then I read the book and I thought uh, it was going to be this very different uh, novel. Yeah. Or it's, it's a no novella, I guess. And and you're right. It, it really was up for most of it fairly faithful, uh, but it did explain everything crystal clear. Now I understand. So if you want to understand Life Force, you, you kind of have to read the book as a companion to understand anything that's going on in this movie. And I do feel like the person who did not read this book was Toby Hooper. <laughs> well, yeah, because he was probably had his nose in the mountains of cocaine because this was made. This movie was made by um, Golan and Globus, who, if you don't know who that is, they're a famous Israeli partnership. They made mostly low budget action stuff in the 80s. But around this time, they sort of dipped their toe into bigger budget filmmaking and Toby Hooper had a deal with Golan and Globus for three movies. It was Life Force, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, and Invasion from Invaders from Mars, the remake of the fifties movie. They all bombed. So Toby did not deliver for Golan and Globus. But this was the biggest bomb of them all because I think this one actually had a pretty sizable budget for the Well, time. they thought they were gonna they were gonna get that polter that sweet poltergeist box office money. So that we've got Alien and Poltergeist in yeah. one yeah. movie. Exactly. That's exactly what it was happening. And, and right. the movie kind of more or less plays out like that, really, but uh, with some weird caveats, but I kind of feel like it's a sloppy seconds poltergeist. It's also sort of like um, the Quatermass movies in a lot of ways. It's a British series of sort of sci-fi movies. I feel like it's borrowing a lot from that series too. Well, he he said somewhere in there that was this was his um, Hammer film, right? And he apparently was really into Quatermass in the Pit. I can tell that from this movie. Yeah, but it's a very British thing, and if you're American, you probably don't know what that is or care so i do think that vibe if you know the more familiar you are with that vibe the more you're going to be sort of into it but one thing i noticed on this viewing is that this movie is really broken up into four sections and we'll sort of discuss them that way and i, I feel like once you realize what like each section you're kind of in a new movie you understand it yeah. more and the, so the first section is Probably the reason why most people want to watch this movie, this uh, shuttle in outer space that is uh, headed up by Steve Railsback's character. Steve Railsback was in a um, was most famous for being in the TV movie of Helter Skelter. He played Charlie Manson. He's not much of a of a leading man, and nope. this movie sort of proves that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he is kind of a perfect. Toby Hooper actor. He's from, he was born in Dallas, Texas, 
He's like a Texan. Like you could you could see him in another Toby Hooper film. Right. Like he could be in Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, he could be one of the Chainsaw family. Yeah. Totally. I I just kept wishing he was Tommy Lee Jones. You know, I'm like, why if they could have just gotten a Tommy Lee Jones, it would have been ten times better. He totally has that vibe. Yeah. But anyway, so he is the captain of a spaceship, which is clearly based on the sort of Challenger series of shuttles. Uh, it's called the Churchill. I honestly almost laughed out loud when I saw how big the, the <laughs> solar panels are on it. It, it reminded yeah. me of uh, Airplane 2 or something like that, right. even though <laughs> it's probably scientifically feasible to, you know, to actually have that. But it just was so ridiculous looking as an opening shot. Yeah, these solar panels, these solar panels look like they're about 400 yards yeah. long. Yeah. They look like... They look like four football fields long, stretching out from this tiny little ship. It's just the space shuttle. (laughs) That's what makes it so goofy, I think. I do think, though, for 1980s space effects, these are pretty decent. Like, you know, it's not as it's not as good as like Alien or something. But there's a couple of shots and there's one shot where the space shuttle's floating above Earth. And it and it looks like a shot from the 1950s War of the Worlds. Uh (laughs) Like the effects in this movie are all kind of all over the place. Yeah. And this is this is one of my theories about this movie is that it especially after reading the book, the book was a lot of conversation and just a lot of ideas. Yeah. And it could this movie could have played that out very simply for a lot less money and been great. But I think what they were trying to do was, you know, Poltergeist had all these incredible effects in it with rotating sets and yeah. everything. And I felt like Toby was like pressured and he was, you know, probably pressured by Golan and Globus to do this giant circus of a, of a movie. So they just kept coming up with new ideas that nobody'd tried before. Yeah. And these massive puppets and, and, you know, these, these makeup effects and explosions and miniature sets. And when normally would they do that with a big budget movie with a, a director who's very in control is even if it's really expensive, they'll come in and say like, okay, that's not working. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to cut that. This isn't working. And they'll try a new idea. They'll, they'll, they'll scale back. They might put more money into making it look right. But I feel like this director probably was just like, go for it. Like, yeah, that looks amazing. And you know, even when things were, were looking terrible, he was just probably like, this is on fire with some Coke. (laughs) dripping out of his nose they're trying that's that's for sure i feel like for you know the the special effects might be all over the place but you never get the sense that they're not trying and that they're just phoning it in no right so what happens basically is this spaceship is uh sort of chasing the tail of a comet and the comet the whole comet thing now just makes me think of the heaven's gate hail bop thing because you know there's a spaceship in the tail of the comet which is what they believed right was that all based on Life Force? I forgot about that. <laughs> that would be amazing if that came out. That like Life Force was their favorite movie. Yeah, Sebastian, I think you found your cult. I think you could become yeah, based it on Life Force and you can Yeah, uh... exactly. Space vampires. Yeah. So they they find this big ship in the tail of a comet and I do kind of like the design of the ship. It's this sort of weird long thing, but it's it has these things that open up on either end that look like giant umbrellas or something. Yeah. Like a tree or something. Yeah, Yeah, totally. They go into the ship and they basically find these old 
ossified corpses of these bat aliens, which is kind of like my favorite part of the whole movie is the when you see Steve Rails back, back sort of floating up to that one bat alien corpse and its claws kind of uh, sticking out there. It's very, you know, it's very kind of Dracula. And I mean, I think the whole story, if you really think about it, very much kind of mirrors Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. in a lot of ways. Like I got that from reading the book. Finally, this this added up. Like Dracula arrives in a in a boat, right? Well, right. And when he goes back and he tells the story of what happened in the shuttle, that's exactly yeah. like what happens in Dracula. They tell the story of the Demeter, which was a boat that Dracula was on and he killed all the people on the boat. Yeah. Essentially, it's kind of a, a retelling of Dracula with a gender reversal. Yes. So Dracula in this case would be Matilda May, this beautiful young woman who seduces uh, Colonel Carlson, right. who who would be the, the Amina Harker character. Or the John Harker character, yeah. yeah. So yeah, they find these dead bat aliens in the ship, and then they go into another chamber, and it's a kind of cool design. There are all these upside-down prisms, and in them are three humanoid, where they just look like naked human beings, two men, and Matilda May, who is sort of our main vampire, who is pretty much naked during the whole movie. She's very attractive, so you're, it's not so horrible to see her naked. But I do feel kind of bad for female viewers because you've got these two dudes who yeah. are also pretty hot, but you don't get any wang. No. Which is also kind of prob a problem in the film because... When these when these astronauts go and find these these vamp these space aliens that look humanoid encased in these glass crystal coffins, yeah. there's three of them. There's a woman in the middle, and there's two men on either side, and then there's these astronauts, and there's a woman astronaut with yeah. them, and these men are like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I've never yeah. seen such a perfect." Yeah. <laughs> and the woman's like rolling her eyes, and she's like, "Oh my god," and she's like totally unaffected by. The men that are standing there. I know that she should become mesmerized by their vampire, space right. vampire wangs. And this is kind of a flaw in the whole movie that they never address that. Yeah, they kind of clumsily try to do something with the men, but it's really, it doesn't ever really amount to anything. No. Like, the, they're just sort of, they were there because in the book that it described others, like, they're, it definitely focused on the girl, but... They all were supposed to have these life force sucking powers yeah. to to control everybody by their sexuality. Right. And the movie just sort of like tried to avoid that. Yeah. Right? Right. Because I think, you know, it was the 80s and, you know, yeah. they're like trying to sell it on the naked girl and it's sort of homophobic and it's a whole homophobic yes. time. And yeah, they just, they couldn't... They couldn't sell naked men wandering around <laughs> to the to the yeah, general and these public, guys looked like they looked like gay porn stars. Yeah. They're like perfectly waxed and they're super beautiful. Yeah. And the, you know, one of them is actually uh, Mick Jagger's brother. Oh, really? Yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> yes. Wow. So yeah, there's these these perfectly sculpted men, and instead of everybody sort of becoming a deer in the headlights when they see these men they they just shoot at them yeah through the, throughout the movie but if you want to look at it at it from a different perspective also it also just kind of shows how 
stupid men are in our society that just like you know a hot babe naked comes up to them and they're like they don't know what to do whereas like (laughs) women are like all right two naked men so what like yeah let's do the right thing but um every man that she encounters basically is just a bumbling idiot after after she you know is in their presence the movie is pretty sleazy and horny but the book is off the rails the the book is it's one of the horniest <laughs> it's basically like all it's about is the sort of psycho psychosexual interaction between these characters and how horny you are is how much life force you're giving to the alien right huh. right yeah, yeah and I and it even that. pushes the, it's very rapey too like like in some of these instances like people want to be like hurt and and beaten or raped yeah by these right. what, didn't they vampires? allude to that with that with a redhead right he's like she wants me to beat her and i was like what is happening that is here? directly yes. from the book like okay. the book is like she wants it she she like wants you her to be to be hit and thrown down to to get more energy from yeah. her it was just a random thing to add to the movie yeah totally point, felt. yeah so this stuff when it came across in the movie it didn't really translate it just made it kind of nasty but is the book sleazy? Because I know, like you know, Dracula is supposed to be a very like sexual work, and it's like erotic and wet. But is is yeah? This I'll equal? say this: the book it came out in the seventies. It actually seventy six, I think, and it and it came out pretty close to the when the Howling was published. And I think this was kind of a popular idea of taking these these you know these classic horror monsters and and sort of modernizing them, but making them hypersexual because it was the 70s and you could do that. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there was already those sexual elements in the monsters to begin with, but it was the 70s was all about like really leaning into it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the howling also has the whole therapy, you know, angle. And the howling is very 70s. Even the movie (laughs) came out in the 80s, but it's... When I was reading the book, I was like, this this reads like, you know, uh, an excerpt from a Playboy Right. Submission. Yeah. Like okay. It seems like something that would be submitted to Playboy. Form. Right. Yeah. yeah. OK. So anything else to say about the uh, space section of the movie? Uh, only that just all the acting is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I dug the music, too. but I like the music. I think the music is pretty good. Yeah. 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 I thought the music was was strong. Really? And it's kind of funny when I, I was watching the, uh, you know, I just watched Alien like we were discussing and um, just how great those sets were. These sets are. Especially the in the the space shuttle, they look good, but it's they don't have that weathering and that you know no um, used look, and that it's it's funny to see it, you know, because they they spent money in and they definitely built a lot of the sets, um, but they don't have that grind that just makes it real for some reason. No, they don't have the verisimilitude of Alien. Like exactly. I mean, it's not but even you miss close. it so much, you know, because like the rest of the set is good. If they the just worst thing it. you can do is watch Alien right before you watch. Yeah, this movie. well, that's what happened. <laughs> did you say you liked the music though? I did. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't like the music. Here's the thing. There's two. I watched the theatrical cut, and that's the one I saw when I was a kid too. Right. And. The opening to the theatrical cut does not have that Henry Mancini sounds like a parade march kind of, which is the theme uh-huh. of, of Life Force. It just kind of has this ominous like sound or something. But but the um, Henry Mancini choice to, to do the music for this 
I find probably the, one of the most bizarre things about this movie. Is it Henry Mancini? Yes. Wow. You're right, yeah. Like Henry Mancini, Pink Panther, right. Breakfast at Tiffany's, like nowhere in his body of work does he seem like science fiction or horror ever. And Toby Hooper really wanted Henry Mancini for some reason to score this thing. He probably loved Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> it's a, it's one of the oddest choices of of music for a movie originally titled Space Vampires. So maybe if you thought that was going to give it the Hammer film feeling or something. Yeah, I, that's what I kind of feel like. It, it's got that kind of bombast of the Hammer yeah. films. Sort of maybe thought it sounded British. And if you haven't gotten Hammer film from it, the next section you definitely do because we cut to Earth... Um, you know, they take in the three humanoid aliens and one of the dead bat aliens, and then we don't know what happens to the spaceship. We cut to Earth 30 days later, so a whole month has passed, and n nobody on Earth knows what happened to the spaceship. But for some reason, we're focusing on this group of stuffy British characters. <laughs> Dr. Falada. Dr. Falada, who is totally the Van Helsing character. Yes. Like 100%. Played by this actor, Frank Finlay, who is, you know, pretty well known in British movies. He's even dressed in, in like a, a, he's got the little gold chain watch. Yeah. And he's got like gray hair that's swept back. He's, you know, yeah. he's, he's definitely working that Van Helsing magic. But I do kind of feel like the other characters here are pretty uninteresting. We get this one guy who I don't even like Bukowski, who just sort of fa factors in a little bit here and there. And this guy, the uh, what is he? The sir? Is it Kane? Well, Kane, no, Colonel Kane is the the sort of uh, investigator character who comes in. Okay, but there's you know there's a couple of guy, a couple of Brit stuffy British guys, and they and they make the movie I think a little bit difficult to focus on because Absolutely. they're just like they're just like such drips. It might be realistic, but it's so boring. They're just kind of like. I don't know. I do like Frank Finlay. I think he's sort of an interesting character, but he sort of disappears through a lot of the movie. And um, I, I do like uh, Colonel Kane. He's played by Col like Colin something or other. Peter Firth. Oh, Peter Firth. Peter Firth, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's sort of like our go-to guy. He's, you know, he's going to get stuff done, but he's kind of a sourpuss, so he's you don't really love him either. But these are sort of our main characters for this section of the movie. And basically what happens here is um, the, the ship comes back and it's all been burned up on the inside. And they, you know, they find the humanoids in there and the humanoids get out and start sucking the life force, hence the title of the film, out of different characters. Carlson is missing. That's important, which is confusing. Right. It also adds a level of total confusion for this movie. So they find yes. the Churchill. Carlson is not there. Which seems like kind of a big mistake, narratively speaking, because for better or for worse, I think he's our like the guy that we we feel is the lead of the movie. And in this point of yes. the movie, suddenly you're paying attention to these British guys. Yeah. And like, like Chris, this is why I think it's hard to focus on this movie because you're like already in a sec you're now you're in another movie your main character of the last movie is gone you are getting you know cool um sort of 
relatively cool creature kind of effects with the vampire sucking the life force out of people and then they leave them as these sort of desiccated corpses who are yeah. still alive and like come back to life on yeah. on like uh, the medic in the medical lab and stuff but yeah i mean i think the the whole like taking carlson carlson rails back yeah. <laughs> out of the movie is again sort of a tribute to the original Dracula because in you know Dracula Jonathan Harker isn't in a big section of the story that's right I didn't I didn't think about that with the Dracula comparison but he's like Jonathan Harker and Dracula is held up in the castle yes while Dracula comes to invade the London the spaceship is the castle is like Dracula's castle kind of the boat right it's a couple of things but yeah but Carlson who would be Jonathan Harker is up there. Yes. He's in an escape pod for 30 days, we find right. out. <laughs> Did they think that he was burnt, right. burned up? Or, right? Did, like, the rest of the crew was burnt, and then... He he lights them on fire. No, I was just trying to figure this out before we started the podcast. There's He gives you two explanations right. in this movie. Well, he eventually, Carlson comes back in the space shuttle and describes to them what happened. Yes. But he's lying. Right, right. Which yeah. <laughs> this is not that confusing. I mean, it's I could still follow the movie. It's still enjoyable. It's not tenet. You know, I'm like, I feel like this is fine. Like he when they find him, yes, he's been in this capsule for 30 days or whatever. How he managed that, nobody yeah. knows. But where did he go to the bathroom? Fair enough. Or was he unconscious? What did yeah. he yeah. eat? <laughs> but uh he comes back and and says that one by one the crew started having the life force sucked out of them, but somehow he managed to avoid that, but he was compelled to, he was drawn towards the the female alien. And then he decided he had to burn the ship to protect Earth. And this really convoluted explanation, he's kind of telling us this. That's his, his, what he said. He basically destroyed the ship and everything on it, including, he tried to destroy the aliens, But then they're telling him, no, none of the aliens actually made it down here. Yeah. And they're infecting everybody in London. Right. You failed. Yeah. That's what happened. Right. That's his first version of the story, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, these basically these British guys are dealing with these corpses coming back to life and sucking energy out of people. And Matilda May gets up and kills a couple of guys and basically walks out the front door of like the British Space Center or whatever it's called. It's basically just like a building, but it's called like the Space Center. <laughs> British Space Research, the ESA, Research Center. Right? Like Yeah. This whole movie needs like an American cowboy. You never think that you want to see something like that. And then now that we're just with these three stuffy British guys, and it's also kind of laughable. It's like just have NASA be here, guys. The ESA yeah. hasn't done shit. Like, come on, man. Like, it just seems like they're obviously trying to, to you know, make it a very British movie and, right. and base it. Well, also in the UK, in the eighties, there, there. I don't think there really was a British space program. So they, this had to be a joint. That's a, the ESA is the European Space Agency, which is okay. like the European Union Space Agency, but it's kind of. So this had to be a joint mission. With the United States, because the United States had a space shuttle. Okay, so this is a problem I have with this whole movie, is why is it in England? 
That's yeah. Why um, isn't it said it? Why isn't this taking? They they do go to NASA at one point, and it's like they cut to NASA, and it's just like this dingy little room, and they've got like a little thing that says NASA. Of course, yeah. And like that's basically all they really say about NASA. Yeah, and it just doesn't make sense that they're setting the movie in England. Well, the, there's two reasons for that. The book, yeah, school us, Troy. Come on, you must know. The book was based in in London, and Toby Hooper wanted to make his Hammer film. Ah, uh, he was he was kind of apparently right. like hell bent on making this. Right, he was really attracted to the idea of making this a British horror film. And if it's Dracula, it's London, right? I mean, and also in Quartermass, the first two Quartermass movies, it is an American right. detective. That's who Quartermass is. He's an American, right. and he is in London trying to find out these these aliens. I also think Golan and Globus had some kind of like arrangement with a uh, British like soundstage or lot or whatever Makes because yeah. well because they also did Death Wish three. Which Death yes, Wish Three yes. is all shot <laughs> in in England, subbing yeah. for New York. And did so you know funny. that Michael Winner was set to direct Life Force? Speaking of Death Wish Three, well, that makes sense. Kind of. I mean, he's sort of a sleaze bag, so yes. I could see him pulling off that <laughs> that shit. But so so the lead guy though is from NASA, right? He the pilot of the Churchill is. So yes. he's the one NASA presence. Carlson. Right. When when he finally comes back to Earth on his, his escape pod, he lands in Texas and they're like, they hear about it and they're like, get Carlson here. It's like, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> well, because he, yeah, he lands in Texas, but the British guys are like, we need him here. And like, poor Carlson's got to get on a friggin' plane, like after he's been in space for 30 days <laughs> on his own, and then hightail it to friggin' London to deal with these stuffy Brits. I'm surprised they didn't show the Concorde and be like, <laughs> look, it's. <laughs> but I mean, I think he knew that uh, Matilda May was there, so he probably had a real spring in his step getting That's there. True. So, yeah, so this whole p- part of the movie, this second of the movie sort of is, you know, as we're saying, the sort of hammer film setup, and we're getting these sort of animatronic corpse makeup effects. Troy, you're sort of a horror movie makeup guy. What's your take on these corpse puppets? Yeah, when I, I've done a lot of visual effects in horror films, but it's all digital. But when I was a kid, I totally wanted to be a makeup artist. That yeah. was like my life dream. But even as a kid, when I saw these, I don't know, like these, yeah. they looked like puppets. And and that's what I was saying earlier. I think the, the effects in this were a little over ambitious. Yeah. Because these could have easily have just kind of been zombie makeup, right? With just a person in a suit. And I think it actually may have even worked a little better, but... They were trying to do something that nobody had ever seen before. So they wanted a fully, a life-size, full animatronic person shriveled up to look skeletal. But the proportions are weird on them. Like, it's a cartoony, it looks cartoonish. Eyeballs, the eyeballs are not, look yeah, they're not totally like uh, the same wear. You know, they're, like the eyeballs are totally fine. They're regular human being eyeballs where the rest of the entire corpse is withered. So it definitely stuck out. The the first guy that gets shriveled up when he becomes one of these things, he maintains his perfect flock of hair yeah. on it. So you see this like zombie, this, this skeletal zombie makeup 
with like this quaffed of excellent combed hair and he kind of looks ridiculous in a way. And I th- I remember thinking that when I was a kid, it just kind of looked strange with these cartoony eyeballs and this perfectly combed hair. Didn't really look scary. You know what looks scary is later on the in the movie, um, there's going to be a dead, uh, a, a woman desiccated yeah, corpse. And they have a scene with her like coming back to life as a corpse, but she's naked and she's a redhead. So she has this like red corpse muff on her. Yes. <laughs> did you notice that? I did. This time it's I really noticed it. It's really disturbing. Yeah. Like, it is. It's, and I was like, wow, that's perfectly red. Yeah. It's, yes. I mean, it's just like a, you know, piece of fuzz that they threw on the puppet, yes. but it's just, there shouldn't be pubic hair on puppets ever. Nobody yeah. needs to see that. <laughs> and certainly not ginger pubes. Troy, you were mentioning the return of the living dead. I'm thinking of the, the corpse, the half corpse that they have on the table in that. And that looks 10 times as better. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So which was, Oh, so much years better. later, not even like, no, they, this was actually, so what happened with return of the living dead is Toby Hooper was supposed to direct that. And then uh, Canon Films came to Toby and they they said, look, we'll give you a three picture deal and we want you to make this giant big budget movie for us. And they sort of pulled him off of Return of the Living Dead. And so he suggested Dan O'Bannon to direct Mm -hmm. it. And that's how, and then he wanted Dan O'Bannon to write Life Force. And that's the connection Uh with Return of the Living Dead. But yeah, so Return of the Living Dead, I think was shot like right around the same time or a year before or after, basically right around the same time. And you're right, it just looked way better. So much better. The the zombies in there looked repulsive and gross and they moved really weird. And I remember being pretty freaked out by, you know, the, uh, the mud zombie oh, yeah, yeah. and return and the, the lighting yeah. and the editing don't do it any favors. I feel like they're just laying it all out for everybody to nitpick and see. And, and like the scenes are long, you know, these, these zombies aren't dying right away. They're just like, ah, and then freaking out for like minutes on end. And you're like, okay, it's, but it does kind of remind me of like the bodies exhibit in a weird way. So I don't know if that is like anatomically correct. So also they're in a, yeah, you're right. They're, they're in a brightly lit room. You're right. This is a, a medical observation room. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're seeing it's it's very uh, unforgiving exactly. to the puppetry and the, the latex and the rubber and everything. Yeah. But I mean, the, it's a similar scene in Return of the Living Dead. They, they It's in a medical examination room with that sort of half woman corpse in Return of the Living Dead. But it looks yeah. so much better. Just the, the, everything about it is so much better. Okay. So the next section of this movie, and this is where I always sort of get lost, but this time when I was watching it, I was really sort of taking in the the different sections and it becomes basically a body swapping movie. Um, like, and which is kind of, well, it's kind of like the thing too, right? Not body swap, but more, right. And what do you call the thing? What is that? Uh, no, I think, but the th- you can call the thing a body swapping movie for a lot of it. Right. I, I think of vice versa when you say body swap. So like, well, this is more possession. That's actually the correct word for this. It's, oh, yeah. There's a, actually a fun B movie called The Hidden. Yeah, The Hidden's awesome. Yeah. The, there's an alien that's jumping between person to person. Right. And it's being sort of communicate, it being like it's like a communicated disease or whatever. 
And actually, Friday the 13th, uh, Freddy, no, not Freddy, uh, Jason Goes to Hell is another body swapping, <laughs> terrible body Never swapping movie. Interesting example that you bring. Well, but it is, it's a, it's kind of like a genre. Like it yeah. is kind of, it's a yeah. subgenre, the body swapping horror movie. Like remember Fallen with Denzel Washington? Like it was late nineties. It's like a it. demon going it, yeah. from people. But to you're person. right. It is interesting how the, the, the movie gets smaller as it, when it comes to this thing, it, it becomes like into like an intimate, like, yeah, like a detective story at this point, you know, which is interesting. Well, there's also a problem here with whatever it is that they're doing, we're we're trying to figure out. They kind of don't really explain the rules very right. well in this. And then there's a secondary thing that these aliens are doing, yes. which are not body swapping. And only later in the film do you learn that only the first three vampires can have the ability to do this body swapping. Everybody else that gets infected right. yeah. only just gets infected. Has right. two hours to live or yeah, something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's the other. So the, <laughs> the, the rules to this are the first three vampires can body swap or jump. They can jump around bodies, but if they infect people, those that get infected all just need to feed every two hours right. or they will shrivel up and turn to dust. Yeah. And that's never really explained very well at all in this movie. Do you remember if that's in the book? It's so in the book, only the the vampires they bring down uh, have the ability to suck energy from people. Here's the here's the thing about the book. Oh, just to just to throw this out there, the the book basically suggests that we are all vampires and that these people have been here before and have maybe seeded, superseded the human race on Earth thousands or, you know, at yeah. the beginning of time. Yeah. And so we are partly, all of, everybody is partly vampire. And that's our sex drive, essentially, yeah. is, th is that hunger that we have. Is that why she says you were born to meet me, right? I mean, that's basically the through yes. line. Okay. So the book... Basically, the only vampires are these people they, that they bring down from the derelict ship. And all they do is just kind of trade off life force energy from, from people. But they never spread beyond that. And the book essentially ends in the, the later scene that we're going to get to in the, in the hospital with, with Patrick Stewart. That's kind of where the book that sums everything up. Mm -hmm. And then they'd go home. <laughs> basically so there's never so the the idea of this spreading around and taking over london that is all a dan o'bannon uh, toby hooper invention right. which is why it is a secondary rule to the first rule but yeah i think the reason why the rules get weird is because they have to advance the story in some meaningful way and this is what they came up with i kind yes. of think it's kind of ingenious you know just to distill it down to like oh it's just life force it's not even blood it's life force and then you kind of yeah. get a two for one you get vampires and you get zombies you know they really like figured out a way to to have it all there and sex and sex exactly and i feel like there's a there's probably a great movie somewhere out there if you can kind of take the same concept and and say something really deep about society and men and women and sex and life and forces and you know it's I think it's a cool interesting concept and it's just a, stuck in a B movie is 
kind of the problem, I guess. Toby Hooper said that in his commentary for this, he said it's mm. uh, it's about relationships. <laughs> I, I see what he's saying. I see what he's I'm saying. sure that made sense to I, him at I the time. I see it. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's not obvious, but like, it's not crazy. It's in there. So anyway, what happens in this section is, uh, to sort of sum it up quickly, the alien life force that was once Matilda May is now gone into this other woman, this red-haired woman who we'll later see naked on a table uh, named Ellen. She seduces this, you know, this older guy in his car. And this is the part that's just so strange to me. So apparently this person who got infected with the life force was already crazy or something because she was living in an asylum. <laughs> she's a nurse. Okay, she's a nurse. Okay. And I I didn't catch that until like the second time I tried. I had to rewind it actually because I had the same thing. Did they ever explain how Matilda May got it? Was she just happened to be wandering around in no. London and then Matilda May got into her? <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> so Matilda May, we see her leave the... Uh, facility she walks out and escapes in the, in the beginning there yeah. you know and they're like oh no she's gone we got to find her and then they are hypnotizing carlson right and he can connect with her he has this connection with matilda right. may and so he under hypnosis he's describing this red-haired woman yeah. <laughs> but we don't know anything about her and and through his his like um hypnosis he's seeing that she's seducing some old man in a car he's touching her leg for no reason at all like we don't know does she need a ride is she lost like she's wandering in like the moors like like, yeah. like song remains <laughs> yeah. the same or something it, it's like an outtake from that right. where's robert plant <laughs> yeah and she starts like she starts seducing this old man and this old man starts like getting hot and bothered. And then Carlson starts going, oh my God. Like he starts freaking out. She's she's tempting him. He's touching her leg. <laughs> I love this scene. And then they have a description of her. And, and I think he knows her name and he knows that they drove to this. No, they get the license plate off the car. It's the Mina Dracula con mind connection, right? I mean, it's the same thing. Right. Like No, the mind connection is the most sensible right. thing about yes. the whole yeah. scene. Yes. Like, that's sure. what I'm buying the most. No, but how they arrive later at this mental asylum, which is where this woman okay, is. Okay, see, I thought she was a crazy person that Me was too. wandering around and somehow Matilda May got into her out in the moors or some shit. I think for like 30 years, this is what I thought that scene was about until to like last this week. This is the part of the movie <laughs> that if you're not drinking like three cups of coffee and like paying attention yes. to it, like we just had to do, you're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, I had to rewind it because I thought the exact same thing. So we're at, I thought she was an inmate and then they go into her. She's got like David Bowie posters in her room. Yeah, they go in, <laughs> Patrick Stewart meets them and says, okay, I let me show you to this woman. Yes. I know exactly who you're talking about. He takes them up to her room. I'm thinking she's an inmate. Yes. And then and then she has this nice little apartment. I'm thinking, what kind of an asylum lets their inmates 
decorate their rooms with David Bowie posters and butterflies. She's like and a thirty-five-year-old woman, and she's got like yes. rock posters up on her. Yes. Uh, her uh, and I'm thinking it's her 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 crazy person room. And it, and at this point, I was so confused that I rewound it and had to catch that she's a nurse at this facility. That makes, I guess, a little more sense. Did they even need to go there though? Because like they pull the info out of out of her mind later on that leads to the asylum anyway why do they even yeah i feel like it's all unnecessarily you know confusing and eventually you get to the asylum it's basically it's a bridge to take us to patrick stewart is what it's doing but there's even a there's another sort of misdirect in here because then okay then there's a scene where carlson is trying to find out if matilda may is in this red-haired nurse right and he starts yelling at her and slapping yeah. her around and calling her a oh, bitch. This scene is, yeah, really disturbing. Yeah, because she wants it. She She's, wants it. This and, woman has S and M fantasies. Yeah. And then the fact that the guy goes, I, "I'm a voyeur. I'm down. I'm gonna oh, take yeah. a seat. Make some popcorn, man." <laughs> and I'm like, "What the hell?" By the way, exactly from the book. <laughs> and so then after like basically roughing up this broad, he's like, "Ah, oh, she's not in here. <laughs> Matilda's maze not in here after all." And then so and she's in Patrick Stewart. Right. <laughs> yes. But I think so so Carlson knows that she's in Patrick Stewart, but then Patrick He does a red herring. He's like, "Oh, there's a guy with the There's a misdirect a red herring that says, "Where's right. this child molester patient that you have?" Right. Cuz she's in him. I feel like at this moment this this movie could have used a little bit more of a species and layer of the white worm type, you know, female fun seduction scenes you know what i mean i i guess there's that one scene with the car but it's all through his his eyes but like i feel like they could have had more fun with with all of that there was another thing that i caught in the uh the commentary of this that tilby hooper was saying is that apparently they were writing the script as they were shooting uh-huh. this <laughs> yeah so that might answer some of that. yes it definitely this section definitely feels like they were writing it as they were going because yeah, yeah, then it's like, oh no! Before they find out that the the that Matilda May is actually in Patrick Stewart, they think that it's in this child murderer who yes. who is like in the I don't want to I guess the high. Sec- he's in a padded room. He's in a, a padded room, and he's got this. Yes. he's got this sort of like Gorbachev like uh, birthmark birth on, his, on face. his face. I was so confused by that. Where. Were they? Were you a little confused here? Yeah, I thought the whole point of him bringing them to that padded cell was so that when they got Patrick Stewart, they could just keep him in there. Because then, why is he like, where can we take him? I'm like, keep him in the freaking cell. Like, what? He's the guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You you would think that after uh, another draft of the screenplay, (laughs) they they would have locked that in. But apparently, (laughs) they were still sort of jotting this stuff down. There's a great scene where Patrick Stewart finally shows up, and I'm like, oh my god, here's a finally a a decent charismatic lead. And they're going up to the lady, the redhead's apartment, and he's like, don't you want me to come with you? And I'm like. I sure do. <laughs> I wish you were like more, more in this movie. And they they keep saying, no, 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 stay out here. And I'm just like, let Patrick Stewart be in the movie more. Yeah. So let's give some props to to Patrick Stewart. Yeah. For, for a moment here. Hot off Doom. And the thing that's funny about Patrick Stewart is that he's got an interesting career because at this point, his career was in the doldrums. Like he's just playing this like yeah. bit part in this shitty sci-fi movie then he gets into star trek the next generation 
And, you know, even though it's just a TV show, 10 years later, he's, you know, headlining his own movies. And, you know, then he yeah, ends up in yeah. X-Men and stuff like. Was he in the doldrums or was he doing like Shakespeare and, and theater? In terms of movie stardom, he was. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was. Well, he was in Dune, which we covered again. But he was, yeah, not a big part of that movie. He wasn't a big part of this. Yeah. He was always showing up yeah. in bit parts, like, which is weird I think probably for people who who kind of came of age in the Patrick Stewart era of like Star Trek and into X Men, they probably think, oh, Patrick Stewart's an A lister, and then you 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 go back to something like Life Force, and you're like, what is Patrick Stewart doing in this? And he's good though, and it's cool that <laughs> like you know he just persevered. I think it's a cool you know thing to see him like plugging away and. Doing good work. Oh, no. And he gets this crazy scene where they're yeah. trying to basically exercise uh, Matilda May out of him. And she's talking and his, he's talking and her, they're dubbing yeah. her voice over him. Patrick Stewart is performing the shit oh, out yeah. of this movie. Right. Like he, he is giving it his all. I mean, he's he's earned his place in in, and he has a screen kiss with Steve (laughs) Riles back. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was I was surprised that they let that slide in 1985. Yeah, this is the part. Like for the last 20 minutes, the movie has been doing everything it can to like lose your attention, and then here (laughs) you're like, okay, I'm back in. Skip over the dream sequence though. Like that was pretty cool, right? Like that first dream sequence where he has sex with. uh, Oh yeah. Matilda Maine, it gets all Suspiria. Doesn't matter that we skipped over it. Just at some point in between all these events, he he dreams that he has sex yeah. with Matilda May. That could pretty much be anywhere in I the movie. I thought it was a great scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like the movie sort of ends there too. You know, right. That's, that's true. Kind of the yeah. big the big ending. But um, yeah. So this this scene is great. They're sort of trying to get Matilda the the, the vampire out of Patrick Stewart, and then yeah, like Chris said, they're like, well, like. I don't they they're going to take Patrick Stewart with them or whatever. And um one thing I I I noticed on this watch is that there's a lot of like the the helicopter is used a lot and it's funny because I worked for um New Image Films which later became Millennium Films uh when I first moved to LA and that was run by uh, a bunch of Israeli guys and they basically were just trying to be Golan and Globus again. They, you know, they, they weren't Golan and Globus, but they, they had come up as producers through Golan and Globus and they were just trying to recapture some of that gold Golan and Globus magic. And I remember one thing, they were super obsessed with helicopters. Like huh. they, they were like helicopters give the movie more yeah, production value, value right? you know, like, and like, I noticed like, oh yeah, there's a lot of helicopter in this movie. Interesting. So like they, yeah, they bring Patrick Stewart onto like an army helicopter. And then there is this friggin' insane scene. Well, wait, 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 we gotta, we still gotta cover. Also, did we mention that Pat, I don't know if we said that Patrick Stewart is the head of this insane asylum. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. This scene where he basically starts beating again, like seducing sexually kind of beats, browbeats Patrick Stewart is this crazy poltergeist scene where the room starts spinning around. Yeah, yeah. And there's more like poltergeist ghosts and furniture floating for no reason to get this information out of Patrick Stewart. Right. At this point in the book, this is where basically the book ends kind of at this scene. This is where the space vampire girl comes out, manifests out of the 
asylum caretaker out of Patrick Stewart's character and set, gives this 10 page explanation of like base we've come we've lived amongst you we've traveled around the stars and galaxies dying planets we've helped you with your inventions and then they they essentially leave uh-huh and the and then the story kind of sums up at that point so everything moving forward in the movie life force at this point they're just sort of coming up with shit to just Keep this uh-huh. thing going. Keep this ride and going. And all they come up with is a zombie movie, basically. Yeah. That's all they, they yeah. come up with. But yeah, right. So the, yeah, there's this crazy sort of poltergeist-like scene. And then one of the guys who's like Sir somebody or other dies at this point. His character we've barely even noticed. He's like the third British guy who's right. just yeah. along for the ride. <laughs> you know, Troy, like you were saying about the, the female astronaut, I feel like if they were to remake this movie today, you know, they, they need another strong female presence on the, like the good guy's side. You know what I mean? It's all just three yeah, stuffy totally. British guys. There needs to be like yeah. a Nicole Kidman or another scientist, like somebody who's like leading the charge just to balance out the whole thing. Cause it's. Oh, totally. And it's actually, it's not even a problem with, with sort of being misogynistic or homophobic. It's actually kind of a problem with the story. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the whole idea of, of how these vampires are operating doesn't make sense if women are just to- sort of unaffected right. by it the right. whole time. But I mean, you could still keep it a a female vampire in the lead and have women be affected by her too, you know? It yeah. just, yeah. you just could go that route. It's not. They should cast someone like Tilda Swinton who can just be like a man, a hot man and a hot woman and they can just like switch around. Yeah. The the 80s, this, you know, they, they weren't going there yeah. yet in the 80s in, in any kind George, of horror yeah. film. And if there was... It, well, no, but if there in horror films, if I think if there was a gay sex or or lesbian scenes or anything, it was it was meant there to be frightening. Yeah, sleepaway camp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was used as a as a right, horrific right. device. You get it in the hunger. The hunger is kind of yeah. Uh, it sort of stands alone in that way. Yeah, and and I think that's prob- probably why it wasn't so popular. Yeah. That was why it was considered, quote unquote, like an art yeah. film. All right. Do we have anything else to say to this before we move on? Yeah, let's get to the chopper. Get to the chopper. Right, <laughs> yeah. So for some reason, they decide to take Patrick Stewart with them into this helicopter. And while they're in the air, Patrick Stewart's body and the body of the other guy like sort of ejaculate blood into the air yeah, and it yeah. forms into Matilda May into this like screaming bloody vampire. And I guess they're kind of trying to do the scene that you were just talking about, Troy, that ends the book, but they're doing it in this helicopter. And yeah, uh, yeah it is just friggin' nuts. It's definitely a kind of fever dream yeah. moment. There's no reason for it. It doesn't, there's no explanation. It makes no sense. Matilda May forms out of this blood globule yeah. and then screams and disappears. It's essentially like they're trying to say that she escapes. Yes. Right. From Patrick Stewart. The blood basically just splashes down into the ground and then she's gone. And that's when <laughs> Railsback is like, it was me. I'm the one who freed her. I was in love. Right. <laughs> yes. So this is where we get the uh, the second, the retelling yes. of what happened. And and f- f- just right, for, right. he just kind of goes right, into it. Yeah. He's just like, actually, you know what? I lied. 
to you guys after they they witness <laughs> yeah. Patrick Stewart melt into this blood thing. He's like, oh, okay, oh, hold on, hold on. Here's what really happened. Yeah, <laughs> like I actually, I actually fell in love with her, and I couldn't pull myself away from her. I'm the one who burned everybody on the yeah. ship on purpose because I wanted to like be alone with her. What you're not communicating though is the sort of flop sweaty like delivery <laughs> that still is on. Uh, he's got this sort of like mealy like voice where he's well, he's kind of like that through the whole movie. Yeah. And then and I, I had to be with her. I just had to be with her. Oh, yeah, it's oh, just I love. I'm experiencing I love, a love I've never experienced before. What, like, what is the line? Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's always sort of sweaty and kind of like fevered as he's explaining this ridiculous connection he has with the space vampire. I mean, I kind of love it. I, I see what you're saying about him not being a great actor, Chris. But I mean. I don't know. I just kind of love him in this movie. He does his thing. He's so over the top that I, I kind of love him. <laughs> yeah. But think about him if he was, you know, in a van in a Texas chainsaw movie. He'd be amazing. Like like if if um Tommy Lee Jones was in it, Tommy Lee Jones would have just been like, yeah, well, I was in love with her. And, uh, you know, like Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> does not give a fuck. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and he totally just will phone it in sometimes. Whereas I feel like rails back. Hey, you just watched Batman forever. That's just that's why you're saying that. That's his biggest he phones phone in. it in a lot of movies. Yeah, but his phoning in is better than than this guy. I don't know if we we mentioned somewhere around here. Dr. Falada, who we haven't really spoken enough about, we cut to a random scene yeah. where he's calling. Yeah, he's he's killed one of the military guys because he's holding a Conan sword. <laughs> I've figured out how to do it with yes, a sword. He's got like a sword that he's figured out <laughs> if you stab one of the one of these vampires, you know, like stabbing in the, them in the heart with a stake. But wh where did he get the sword? No, no, no. He pulled it out of a box because he is interested in in vampire right. lore. There was like a fleeting little moment where they said he has an interest in the afterlife. Yes. He's not just a biochemist right. or whatever. It's right. And he's like I'm going to tell you about the afterlife, but do you care? Nah. I won't never mind then. <laughs> he has a he, he has a fascination with the afterlife. So there's this random cut to him rummaging through his stuff in his office and he opens up a crate with a giant Conan sword right. in it. And he's like looking at it like, hmm. What could I do with this? This might come in handy. <laughs> Later, he, we're seeing the back, cut back to the office and he's on the phone and he's saying, guess what? I think I've figured it out how to kill these yeah. guys. And the camera like pans over and the giant Conan sword is like, <laughs> it's been stabbed into the, you know, it's like, in this guy's stomach, in the yep. vampire's stomach. And then Dr. Falata says, I've figured it's the old way, Carlson. The vampire, it's the old way. Not in the heart, but two inches down in the in the stomach, right below the heart. Not with steel, but with lead. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, like all these things that you've never heard about in yeah. vampire lore ever. Like, this is not the old way. <laughs> and and he sounds like he's just kind of making shit up, but he figured out, he just tried this sword. He found the sword and he thought he'd try it out. 
Well, they had sort of set up before that we had gone on this whole body swapping trip because, you know, the two male vampires had sort of exploded. They had gotten loose and and basically exploded. But it was implied that one of them got into this one of these soldiers, but they cut away from it. Like the soldier came up to Frank Finlay and was like, can I help you, professor or something? I don't know what he said. And then we we cut away from it. So you've totally forgotten about that at this point. So, yeah, it's this jarring sort of thing where, oh, Frank Finlay killed that guy. Because, you know, we're to assume that the guy had tried to attack him or something like that. But yeah, it's... In the book, Dr. Falada is a, um, is a vampire theorist. Ah. He's, written, he's written books about vampirism. Right. So he's an expert in the field for some reason. Seems to me like they were trying to like, you know, move it towards like, oh, you have to attack like the sexual chakra or something like that. Not the heart, yeah. right? Where the life force emerges and blah, blah, blah. And so they were just trying to like make that connection more and more. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, all they're really doing is setting up this weapon that they're going to use at the very end. Yes. So what happens is um, Railsback goes running off to be with Matilda again. And um, basically, the alien spaceship is now over London. The comet is over London and the alien spaceship is there. And so what's happened in London is it's gone crazy, like this crazy vampire, uh, vampire zombie sort of siege um, where people are being infected and they're running around in sort of crappy zombie makeup feeding on other people. A lot of this looks very clearly shot on some sort of backlot yeah. set. And, you know, while they're feeding on them, they're, this blue poltergeist energy is going off to a cathedral where it's supposedly going through one of the male aliens, <laughs> vampires, then into... Ma- hanging out who's in hanging front. out in front oh, of the right, cathedral. Yeah. And then it's yeah. going into Matilda May, and then she's shooting it up into the into space for the space vampires that are on the, the ship, I guess. And, like, the funny thing about this is this is 1985, and it's the blue light shooting into the sky that we're going to see a million more times in like superhero movies. Yeah. <laughs> like this visual got co-opted by Marvel, especially yeah. like fifth element, even like, you know, just this like light with uh, two people shooting. I feel like up. this is the first like blue light going into the sky that I've seen in a movie. Yeah. So I think life force is weirdly if it has one influence on cinema, they it's set that. the precedent, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like. And these zombies that are running around chasing each other and everybody in, in, in sight, they don't look anything like what no. we have seen previously no. at all. These look like the extras in the background of Michael Jackson's exactly. thriller video. That's exactly what I was going to say that it looks like. They look like the background people in thriller. I also remember just thinking that the easiest thing to add would be a shit ton of ash and dust because like if these guys explode every two hours, like the whole city should have been covered in, in ash yeah. and dust. You know? Well, no, 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 Chris. Some of them explode. Some of them turn to dust and some of them just oh. remain... That that part was never. Sometimes okay. they explode, sometimes they don't, and sometimes the zombies just turn into blue light and get sucked towards the cathedral. It's whatever like phase of cocaine psychosis <laughs> okay. Toby yes. Hooper yes. was on at that particular moment. 
they probably tried it and he just snorted all of it and they were like, all right, forget it. So while um, while uh, Railsback is trying to find Matilda May, our other hero, Colonel Kane, goes to find uh, Frank Finlay um, at the Space Center. He finds him, but Finlay has obviously been affected or something, and he's sort of giving him his speech about this. Is this where he says like these are the vampires of? mythology or whatever it was yeah well but he's also like this is what he's been destined right. to do because he's uh and he's exploring the afterlife right, yeah. he, that's what that's what his interest yes. is in so now he's going there so he almost had kind of has this smile on his face as he's turning into a vampire or he's starting right. to shrivel well up. they they do the face bladder pulsing the bladder pulsing thing and he's yes. got this crazy look in his eyes and he's like so for anybody that that isn't aware of what bladders are in, in the 1980s. Um, I, I forget where it started. Somebody did it. It might've been even Tom Savini, but it was where you basically put a, a balloon under some latex yeah. and then pump air into it. And you could, the effect would look like it's bulging a little bit. And, and once that started, it went every, everybody did this. Yeah. It you had to do it in, in your horror movie. Every single horror television shows. It was, all over the place to the point where it started looking absurd. Every time there was any sort of transformation, it would be bladders. bladders. But yeah, it, then at this point, doesn't he kind of like explode or something? No, he... Uh, no, but he dies and blue energy shoots out blue, of him. Blue energy and he catches on fire. Right, right. And then the and then the energy goes out the window towards the cathedral. And then Colonel Kane takes the weapon and, and goes to run off to kill Steve Rails back, I guess. I mean, basically at this point of the movie, it's just zombies running around, things on fire, explosions. It's pretty... Oh, huge explosions. Like there's... This is also like they were just dumping money into this huge scene and um, they were blowing up double-decker buses. Yeah. And, you know, buildings were collapsing and they had this in one of the bonus features. There was this really pristine... Uh, museum where uh, apparently it was like a replica of London mm -hmm. for tourists. And they, somebody said, sure, you guys can go shoot in there. And they, <laughs> they like created some of their own buildings and, and had their miniatures blowing up in front of this elaborate museum of miniatures. So I don't know who let them do that, <laughs> but that that was also a part of it is they had these amazing miniatures that were built by these artists that they got a hold of. Yeah, the miniatures are good. Because it was from yeah. an actual museum. They're good miniatures. Yeah. They look pretty good. And so, they, yeah, there was optical effects. And I mean, this thing was just, they were throwing every kind of effect at this scene. It is bonkers what's going in on this, in these, uh, the destruction of, of London. But it's kind of like you don't really care what's going on because it's pretty much, you know, that the, the Kane character just kind of running through it. And, you know, you don't really care that much about him. He finally, you know, meanwhile, at the cathedral, Railsback is c confronting Matilda and she's talking about how it's destiny. She's finally got some clothes on. Yeah, she somehow like conjured up this white robe, this ethereal white gown it's got some sort of some sparkles on it or whatever yeah. and um she's telling him that it's their destiny to be together and and you know he's sort of 
being drawn towards her as this light is shooting Wait, up. Wait, did we skip past the uh, when the male vampire says the best line of the movie? Well, no, that's when Colonel Kane shows up. Oh, okay. The male right. vampire is blocking yes. the door oh, right, to the right. cathedral. Sorry. What does he say, Chris? It will be much less terrifying if you just come to me. <laughs> I'm like, wow. But but this is another uh, confusing part is so the, the male vampire who's blocking the doorway for Kane to come in, Kane stabs him with the sword, right? Yeah. And then he turns into a bat, a giant vampire bat, which none of the right. others did. I love the yeah, giant vampire bat. That was a bat, cool though. twist. Yeah. That's a good puppet. It was great. It looked, the effect looked great. But again, yeah, like, yeah. It's just random what happens yeah. to these vampires. Like, there's right. no well, rules. Th- those were the bats in the ship, right? Yes. That was their true form. So, yeah. you know, there was a precedent for it. Like, but the first guy that they stabbed with the sword just turned to dust. Maybe he left that part out. That <laughs> oh, by the way, right before they die, they turn into a giant bat. You know what the answer to this is, <laughs> is they only had the money for yeah. one vamp- fun bat puppet. <laughs> They needed, they were saving it for the big money shot, for you know, sure, like, oh, sure. we got one. And it uh, honestly, it's like kind of my, one of my it favorite looks cool. moments. This, that it was, looks so cool. That was a puppet that actually looked great. Yeah. I, I would like this movie a lot more if there were a lot more of those monsters in it, for mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, the, the bat, the bat is pretty cool. And then it just blows up, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it, yeah, it catches on fire or something. I can't remember, but it's destroyed. He's able yeah. to, Kane is able to get inside the cathedral where Carlson and Matilda May are fucking, basically. Yeah. And uh, they're literally, they're, I think they're actually having sex. And Kane's yeah. like, here, I got this, I got the Conan sword. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Carlson's like, hang on. Yeah, right. I'm assuming he, and they, yeah. So basically, Carlson takes the sword and jams it through both Matilda May and himself. And I'm assuming right at the point of climax, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that looks like that's it. when yeah. you got to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And all, all this blue light is shooting up into space and it goes into the spaceship and then the spaceship just kind of like fucks off. Like it I just kind of, you think the spaceship is going to, you think it's going to like blow up or something Well, because yeah. they shoot up in the energy. Like they're yeah. like, Oh, and like you see them being sucked up into the energy mm-hmm. and then it goes into the spaceship. So does that mean that they got away? Are they now in love forever on the spaceship and flying off? This ending is like and and so yeah, it's one of those where you're you're waiting for an answer and the credits start scrolling. Yeah, and the up. music yeah. just goes like da 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 like yeah, and like it's like yeah. they got an orgasm, but we didn't. You're just left there going like, ugh, what? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's clearly setting up life force too. Oh, I don't know. They should have had some epilogue. Yeah, it's very abrupt. So that's basically the end of them. That's that is the end of the movie. Yeah. So I don't understand really why the spaceship flies off at that point. I, <laughs> I, I guess the world is saved. Yeah, they saved it, <laughs> which is weird. Yeah. What did the sword have to do? They destroyed they destroyed the vampires. But I guess there's more vampires on the ship. Or not? There, there was a room with like thousands of them. Yeah, yeah. I assumed that the room full of those upside down prisms had all more vampire people in them, and they were gonna. I don't know. Well, the comet, the comet is on its way, right? So maybe it means in another seventy six years it'll come back. But at and- this point, no. At this point, 
the derelict ship had moved out of the comet well, it was and, out. Had, okay. and was like floating above Earth. Okay. Yeah, the comet wasn't there at that point. Yeah, the yeah. comet, we're, we've gotten past the Halley's Comet okay. at this point. It's it's unnecessary now. There's So the derelict ship is on its own, floating above Earth, sucking up all the life force energy. But it's I guess after Carlson stabs Matilda May and himself... They just decided they had enough. Enough is enough. Right. And it's too much trouble for this life force, I guess. And they're on to another planet. And they don't need Haley's Comet anymore. But is Carlson, a.k.a. Steel, Steve Railsback, is he alive in the alien ship, do you think? I think they left it deliberately open, ho- hoping that they could have a sequel. What do you think, Sebastian? I think he's alive. If they're dead, all their souls are all their souls are there, but they don't have any corporeal form. Yeah, but who needs a corporeal form in life force? Like this way, you could recast right, even right. and so have souls the, somebody are else there. playing him in the next. They come movie. to another like planet, or they come back to Earth, and they they can inhabit anybody. I think if you have an orgasm and stab yourself with a vampire at the same time. You reach a godlike level and you can control the ship yeah, to go right. take over other worlds. So that's what happened to Carlson. Nice. Okay. I like, I like that. that. Yeah. I, I like your version. So the, on the Scream Factory disc, there's in the bonus section is the actual theatrical cut. So it's kind of hidden in there. I watched just the main cut, which is the director's cut, which it's about, I don't know, 16 minutes longer. So Did you that's notice what, I saw. what was uh, cut out of it? Yeah. All I noticed uh, difference wise is there's the the Churchill scene going up and exploring the ship is a lot longer. And okay. that seems to that seems to be about it. But apparently it was it, it disrupted the, the edit so much that they had to bring in Michael Kamen. To to redo uh-huh. some of the music, Michael Kamen or Kamen, I, I don't know how his I think name it's is Kamen. pronounced, but Michael Kamen. So that's what I remember. That's the cut I remember seeing when I was a kid. And I like that music intro a lot better than the Henry Mancini pomp and circumstance march that they have. So that's all the theatrical. The theatrical had a totally different score as well? No, not no, just just they they had to take out a lot of the Henry Mancini stuff to uh-huh. make a lot of and I think they trimmed along down the line like just a little bit here and there, but it disrupted the score so that they had to remove some of that so it didn't just like cut off a song element. But this was all just theatrical stuff like everything on the on home video was this cut that we all watched together no that came out i think in the late 90s okay. the director's cut i think okay. the, it was on a laser disc there was like a uh when it when it this arrived on laser disc it had the toby hooper's cut mm-hmm. which uh okay. was like long awaited it had a different opening it's where you see all the credit scroll over like this asteroid and then it's just the the churchill as they're looking at, they're like looking at the ship and it just takes way longer for them to get to Haley's Comet. Right. In the theatrical? And and I mean, in the, in the, in Toby Hooper's director's cut. Okay. Right. Okay. And, and uh, it, unlike a lot of director's cuts, this actually was Toby Hooper's cut that he gave to them and they were freaking out because it was just too long and they, they thought they needed to to move it. And he wasn't that upset about it. Like he said, he was in the edit room when they they started hacking off pieces of it, and he just 
you know, that's fine, I guess. So, so there wasn't anything like missing in terms no. of like subplots or anything. It's no, just no, no, no. scenes are shorter or whatever. Yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, cool. Um, so Chris, what are your closing thoughts on Life Force, the movie? Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would having seen it in the early 2000s, you know, purely as a B movie and watching it with some friends and just laughing at it now that I watched it, you know, there's a lot more to this movie than I thought there was. Um, a lot of cool ideas that I think could be explored in, you know, different versions. But, uh, I also, the lack of a charismatic, strong lead really, really hurts it. And, you know, I just, I feel like you need somebody to take you through the story and, and not just the acting it's, it's, you know, the, the characters are really, really boring and, and they're just dri drips, you know, like they don't, yeah. they don't really show much emotion at all through. They're not given anything to, to really play with. Um, right. But I was engaged the whole time, you know, I mean, out of all the movies that you've, you know, we watch a lot of bad movies on this on this thing. And, you know, it held my interest. I, what do you mean? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> this held my interest really well. And I feel like the 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 ending was, you know, if they had just tacked on a little bit of a prologue or something just to give people a little bit more closure and a, and a better feeling at the end, they would have made a little bit more money maybe because people wouldn't have just like left the theater so pissed off. But, um, but you know, I enjoy it, you know, I'll probably watch it again before I die. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind of recommendation. I'll watch it again before I die. <laughs> um, Troy, Give us your closing thoughts on Life Force. I mean, I'm I'm in the camp where you know, there's a there's a definite cult following for this film, and I'm one yeah. of them. I've always liked ever since these movies came out. Like this came out at the right time for me when I was a kid, and I loved the weirder the better. The the more I didn't understand them, the more interested I was in movies like this. So I've always I've always liked this movie. Even the poster, which I just found out now, that's an eye. You guys said that's like an eyeball. Yeah, yeah you never yeah. noticed that. What? No, that's I the never, main thing. I thought it was like a cuttlefish or something. Well, it doesn't like, make any sense because what yeah, do eyes yeah. have to do with anything? Yeah, I remember in this thinking movie. that you know because that the image left such an impression on me. I was like, when's this giant eye gonna like attack? Yeah, the I always Earth? thought it was like a uh, a a silver spear sphere that was like reflecting. No, Earth I on always it or noticed that it was an eye. I mean, I think they're just trying to capture that alien poster yeah. magic, you know, cause the alien poster, like the alien poster is an iconic poster, but it's like, what the fuck is it? It's yeah. like an egg yeah. with a green light coming mm. out of it over like a field of like, Bodies Which is great. Or like I miss posters that, that right. That are like, what the fuck is going on in this? Just had and a you, weird image that, really didn't have anything to do with the movie. Right. That's great. But yeah, this movie, it's a disaster, but it's it's totally fun. And it also, you know, having now kind of rewatched it and looked at it closely for this podcast, I understand it a lot better. It was great to to read the book and sort of see where this came from. But it also kind of really gives you, you know, with the debate over who directed Poltergeist. Yeah. Just watch this movie and then that might answer some questions for you. Right. Well, but I do, you can definitely see if you're a fan of Poltergeist, you can see the parts in Poltergeist that seem like they're Toby Hooper. Yes, you can totally see that. But then you can also see Poltergeist elements in this that didn't work yeah. very well. Yes. Right. That seemed like it needed a yeah, little bit like, more. Yeah, you're like, what's missing? Why did this work in Poltergeist but not here? 
Hmm. Right. And it's there's a lot of stuff in here that I think Toby Hooper was trying to bring to the table from his bag right. of tricks that he got from Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by trying to do it on his own without whether, you know, he directed, I'm sure he directed Poltergeist. He obviously did. But yeah. Steven Spielberg was over his shoulder producing it. And without that yes. producer, you see what's go, what's happening here. Um, so it's a, it's it's kind of a fascinating insight into those two movies in particular as as sort of uh, companion pieces. I also really enjoy Life Force, and I would recommend it to anybody who's a fan of sci-fi horror movies and sort of eighties schlocky horror movies. I think it fit, if like lands nicely in that yeah. like Venn diagram. Uh-huh. Like if you like those things, you're gonna like it. If you're not into those things, stay far away because this movie's ridiculous in so many ways and will definitely lose you along the way. But I've definitely come to sort of appreciate the insanity of what it's delivering. Um, I agree with you one hundred percent, Chris, that the the problem is that there's not a charismatic lead bringing you through the whole movie. Like that would honestly fix so much that's wrong with this. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Pick somebody from the eighties who would have fit the bill, you know, some Christ, Kevin Bacon, you know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. anybody. Mark Singer, <laughs> Mark Singer could have wielded that sword. Right. Right. Oh totally. yeah. He could, yeah, beast, throw Beastmaster in there and you've got yourself a hit. He's got V and Beastmaster. He can do both. He can hold a sword and shoot a laser. So like, right, right. get that guy there. Like, <laughs> I love Mark Singer. But anyway, you know, I, I think that that, you know, is kind of the film's main flaw. I don't know if I would say that that's why it failed at the box office. I think just it was just too out there for mainstream audiences in the yeah. 80s. Oh, I was going to say that there's another thing that I, I read somewhere that was brought up that this is another victim of the aliens are evil versus being nice problem that was happening in the early 80s with E.T. Right. So The Thing, which was an amazing film, bombed because we you know, audiences were so sucked into aliens are friendly. Yes. So there was a lot of uh, films that were trying to capitalize on alien as being monstrous and evil. Yeah. And they, they were, you know, obviously this is one of them because Dan O'Bannon came to write it and they were like, let's make alien again. And audiences had shifted yeah. their, their viewpoint on that. So I think this film is, is suffering from that as well. True. Right. I also think it's trying to be sort of a, I mean, to your point in some way, it's trying to be kind of more of a horror movie and so the reason why Poltergeist is so brilliant is because it's a horror movie, but it's also living in that sort of kid-centric Spielbergian vibe that was, you know, so popular from yeah. E.T. and everything. Like, like it's like you kind of – I think American audiences at that time were just really into that, you know – E.T., Goonies, like, you know, you need yeah. kids in the movie, you know, what Stranger Things is all about now, you know, that that sort of thing. And it's like this movie had these sort of boring adults as the characters and, the, you know, like you're saying, the aliens aren't friendly, they're, they're mean. But, you know, like Aliens would come out one year later and that was a huge hit. But it had a little kid in it and it was, you know. This is true. It was a very different connection with that. It wasn't. 
Right. It was a mother, a mother daughter kind of story. And that movie's ten times better than this thing. Come on. Well, I mean, of course. Like, <laughs> I, I, did, I think it's it's worth noting though. It's that not just because Newt, like you take Newt out, that movie falls apart. Like, come on. Like, also, could it have anything to do with on the front poster? The tagline is, "In the blink of an eye, the terror begins." <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> That is the vaguest nothing. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the movie, that, yeah. That tells you nothing at all. Like, what? That's a blockbuster. It's definitely <laughs> someone who didn't, who just saw the poster and went, uh, I don't care what the movie's about. Here's the tagline. Yeah, it just, it wasn't, I think it was just a zeitgeist thing. It was just the wrong movie at the wrong time. And it wasn't a particularly good movie. And I'm sure the critics were... Th- telling people to stay away in droves. So I guess there's no real mystery. Well, it should have been made for a lot cheaper. I feel like if you'd cut down that space scene and, you know, cut down on all this crazy zombiness at the end, you know, you could have had a decent low budget, like intrigue movie that, that would have maybe made back its money. Yeah. Well, when's life force two coming out? When are you going to write that uh, script, Sebastian? I'm going to get to work on life force two. Life forces. Life forces. Life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go uh, drain the, the essence out of somebody and find a love I could never imagine. Right. I, I'm a voyeur, so I'll watch. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 